significant at this point in history between the coming of Jesus and his return. After the coming of Jesus and before he returns, we feel the anticipation in the spirit and if you are on the move. And as you are moving in each part in your life, starting with ours, and you're moving throughout this world and doing incredible things, and we're seeing you heal and set free and deliver and save and and, and build communities of people who want to follow you and trust in your way. At the same time, we wait for the return of Jesus because he is there. And his attention, we feel the tears in our faces, the pit in our guts, the trouble that all of us are going through. Lord, show us what it means to live in the midst of that tension how to hold so tightly to you and joy, yet also to recognize that this world is not as it should be. Only in you can sorrow and joy exist at the same time. Only you're the one who can teach us that. And so, Lord, I pray that as we dive into your word today, that you comfort, that you affirm, that you set free, that you also speak right to the hurt and the pain Thank you that your word always accomplishes what it is that you want it to do. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. Can we get those palms one more time? I'm just going to do it enough to be annoying. Come on, let's do it. Yeah, once a year. Once a year. That's all we got. I'm not going to make you do it next week. But we are going to have fun next week. Oh, man, it's going to be such a celebration of Jesus next Sunday. Um, But on our way to Easter, we've been walking through this remarkable letter from the Apostle Paul to this community of new Christ followers in the ancient city of Colossae. Now, if you guys can get as much out of this letter as I have these last several weeks, I mean, it, it is revolutionary in the way that it helps us see who our God is. And I realize there's a lot of connections between Colossians and Palm Sunday. You know, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate the humble King Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. But at that point in history, it had become this exclamation of praise, really. But in the minds of those shouting Hosanna, many of them were thinking, ah, Jesus is going to be the guy to come save us from Rome and sword. But in reality, he was coming to save us from sin and death on a Roman cross. That he wasn't coming in anger to condemn, but he was coming in love to make peace between us and God. Those who have sinned against God and the holy God himself. Jesus is coming to accomplish that. And that is really the theme of Colossians. Right? That the Lord over all creation would come. In his own body, with his own life, to make peace between us and God. And for all who believe and receive that, Colossians says, Christ comes to live in us. His very, his risen life comes to live within us. And that changes everything. It changes our attitudes. We talked about last week how we learn to take off the old self and his carnal desires and put on the love of Jesus instead. We talk about how it shifts our our attitudes. It shifts everything. And this week, 
in their final Sunday in Colossians. Next week, we're going to talk about the hope's glory. But this week, in our final real digging into Colossians, we're going to see how Christ in us also transforms our closest relationships. See, when our closest relationships are experiencing the love of Jesus through us, it's clear God's doing a revolutionary work in us. How many of you know that's true? When your spouse and your kids and your coworkers start seeing something's changed, man, you know God has really done something good in you. And so today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Now, some of you are turning there, but before we read it, let me just say from the get-go, this passage may not seem like a typical Palm Sunday passage. But the reason being is because we want to cover all of this letter, or at least as much of it as we can. And this passage is probably the most controversial passage in the entire letter. And if we believe that all of this is God's word, then when I can't just skip over the parts that are hard, or the parts that may be misunderstood. We actually need to dig in and understand it. But let me say from the get-go, if we read this and initially this passage hits you sideways, you're not alone. For a lot of people, that's the case, and they initially read this. But I encourage you, please stick with me, because I'm going to unpack it. Because oftentimes there's a big difference between what we hear and what's actually being said. I've learned that nowhere more clearly than in my own marriage. I've had this scene play out multiple times in our relationship. So let me, let me say first. I've noticed, especially during busy seasons, times when there's just so much going on, uh, that can be the point where Shelby and I can miss it the most. For one, she and I handle stress and busyness in very different ways. For me, when life gets busy, I get into task mode. I start thinking, what's the most efficient way to go through this day as possible? Emotions are messy, and therefore they're inefficient. So I try to cut that side of myself right off, and I'm just focusing on the thing right in front of me. Anybody else with me on that? All right. Well, Shelby, if you don't know, this is Shelby up here sitting in the middle. She handles stress completely differently. For her, she does not ignore, but she must process her emotions with me. So we've had this scene play out multiple times in our relationship because I'm a slow learner. Where, let's just say it's the end of the day and I'm cleaning the kitchen. And all I can see is what's not been done yet. And she walks up to me and she says these three words. I miss you. I miss you. Now, you don't have to be a licensed therapist understand that based on what I just told you, what is she really saying? She's saying, I love you. I want to talk. I want to connect with you. But when I'm in task mode and I am hearing what she is saying through that filter of efficiency and all the things that I need to do, how do I often hear these three words? I miss you. Kirk, you're not doing enough. How about add, be a husband to your list, okay? You're failing at yet another thing right now. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> Three words. 
I miss you. And all of a sudden, that's how I hear it. What she meant is love, I hear is pressure. And so the way I tend to respond in those situations is I give some sort of curt response of, well, I'm right here. Which sets up the perfect environment for connection. Yeah, genius. But point is, sometimes, sometimes, what happened in the scenario? Instead of actually hearing her, I filtered what she said through my own task mode mindset and completely missed the point. And as we gear up to read Colossians today, I share this story because just as I can hear Shelby's words through my own filter, it, is going to be, it could be very easy for us to go in and read what we're about to read, but read it through our own 21st century Western filter and completely miss the point of what Paul is trying to say. So I encourage you, as we read this, um, pay attention to your initial reaction. But after that, I'm going to follow up by trying to explain for us the best I can the cultural and circumstantial background of Paul's day so that we learn to hear what he's actually saying better. And then we'll see how his words are really revolutionary for our closest relationships, even our marriages and our families and our workplaces today. All right, sound good? That's where we're going. But let's read Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Let's stand together as we read it. We stand as a way to honor God with our bodies and get the oxygen to our brain. All right, Ox, Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that that you also have a master who is in heaven. Lord, take your word, transform our hearts, our lives, and even our closest relationships. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. Now, as we dive into this, For those who oppose biblical Christianity, this passage often is exactly what they're looking for. See? Paul supports slavery and patriarchy. It's right here. How can you get around it? And for those of us who hold God's word as inspired by God, how do we respond to that? And really... Even if it's just not to respond to somebody else, even if it's just to understand it better for ourselves, where do we even start in a passage like this? Let me lay this out first. 
Before we can understand what Scripture is saying to us today, we must first learn what the author was saying to the original readers of the book. You're tracking with me. Let me say that again. Before we understand what Scripture is saying to us today, we must first learn what the author was saying to his or her original readers. Because when we initially hear, wives, submit to your husbands, slaves, obey in everything your earthly masters, that's enough for some of us to say, (laughs) excuse me, Paul. What are you saying to me? And for some, that's it. Well, clearly, the Bible is antiquated. It's irrelevant. And frankly, immoral. Because it supports slavery, patriarchy. And for some Christians, man, that makes us kind of embarrassed. If not nervous. We're tempted to just skip portions like this. Or ignore it. Oh, that's there? (laughs) Didn't notice. Surrender to the popular notions of his day and one human being could own the other. I mean, Jesus announced when he came that he came to set free the captive. Why didn't you show up, Paul? We miss it. Before we jump to conclusions, I want us to give Paul a fair shake. To hear him fully. Before we dismiss him, let me start off by saying this. Okay, let's take Paul's words and bring them in comparison to the cultural background of his own day. All right? This is 2,000 years ago. Cities like Colossae were in a Greek culture. And in Greek culture, they had several what we would call codes, or codes for the household, that teachers like Aristotle or groups like the Stoics would issue these ethical guides to families and to society saying this is how things should be in your home and in your workplace, yada, 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 yada. Okay? Because in pagan Roman society, these institutions of family and work for the stability of life as they knew it, they needed some sort of ethical guide for it on how they were to behave and treat each other. And since Paul was very well educated, he certainly would have been familiar with these. But when he writes his own code for the household, I want us to see this against the backdrop of the household codes of his day. And in turn, see that there are three glaring huge differences between Paul's code and most of the codes of the day. All right, first, Paul points to a very different standard for how they are to treat each other. In the Greek world at the time, they would say, Husbands do this, or wives do this, or whatever, because it is fitting according to nature or according to the culture at large. Right? In other words, they would determine what the ethical guide should be based on what they saw around them. So in nature, well, the strong dominate the weak. So if you're a master and you have slaves, it is fitting that you dominate them. In the same way, because that's the way nature is. But Paul is saying here, he says, I'm not going to tell you what's fitting according to nature. I'm going to tell you what's fitting in the Lord. The Lord Jesus, not nature or culture, is the standard that he's looking for for how we are to treat each other. 
Paul gives clear instructions to those in authority while others don't. Paul speaks to the powerful while many of the other extra guys are kind of hidden. Among the other household codes of the day, you do not find exhortations for husbands to love their wives, for fathers to not break the spirits of their kids, or for masters to treat their slaves with justice and equity. So for his original readers, this would have stood out right away. Oh, Paul's really calling out husbands and wives. Third, Paul dignifies those under authority while others in his day did not. The way he found his husbands to love their wives was revolutionary in a culture where, a pagan culture, where women, wives, had little to no rights. Do not discourage your children. Brand new in his day. And while you had philosophers like Aristotle, who wouldn't even speak to slaves because in his mind they were just property, Paul says, treat your wives fairly. Why? So when we read Paul's words up against the backdrop of his own culture, we see that he's actually swimming quite upstream. He's very much going against the tide of his time. And that makes sense because this is the same revolutionary Paul who in, in chapter 3 verse 11 said that in the Christ community there is neither Jew nor Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, slave nor free. He says Christ is in all. In his mind he knew Christ takes up, for anyone who believes, Christ takes up residence within the husband and the wife, within the parents and the kids, within the master and the slave, each of them loved, valued, honored by Jesus. So why didn't Paul start a revolution and abolish slavery in patriarchy then? Well, I think he did start a revolution. But it was not in the way that we Because in a society like theirs, to try to overthrow the slavery and patriarchy, these were the foundations of society. To try to overthrow that and speak against that would have completely destabilized society and completely distracted from the gospel. In a pagan empire like Rome, you're not going to overthrow slavery overnight. But his focus, his revolutionary focus, was on planting the seeds of the gospel in each Christ follower that would grow fruit in each relationship and eventually spread across society as a whole. It was like the gospel was like this leaven that when sowed into would just spread itself out and begin to transform society at large. And we saw that begin to happen in the first, second, third of this is, is that if you plant the love of Christ and the truth of who Jesus is, then the heart of each believer begins to transform. Well, so, so how does that work in our own lives? Right? If, if the gospel and the truth of Jesus is planted within my heart, what should my spouse begin to see as a change in my life? How will they know? If I'm rooted and built up in Christ, how will that shift my marriage? Let's walk through these that Paul does. See, marriage is meant to be a living picture of the love between Christ and his church. Paul starts with, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 
notice, it does not say, Husbands, subordinate your wives by quoting this verse to her. In fact, he's not speaking to the husband at all right here. He's speaking just to wives. Meaning that if a wife is going to submit, and we'll talk about what that means in a second, but if they are to do that, it's going to be of her own volition, out of her love and obedience to Submit makes some of us nervous. What does it really mean there? What is Paul trying to say? Well, let me say first off, submit nowhere in the New Testament means that a wife or a woman is somehow inferior to her husband or to a man. Nowhere can you support that in all the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament says the opposite. Galatians 3, 28 celebrates that men and women are equal in Christ. But Kirk, how can equality and submission go hand in hand? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that Christ subjected or submitted himself to the Father, even though we know God the Father, God the Son are co-equal. You see, this is an illustration of the very nature of the relationship between the Godhead itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit submitted to one another in love, co-equal. And Paul says that also shows what the church is meant to be like. He told the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 5.21, they are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But there's an attitude of humility. There's an attitude of building up. Of, of coming low in order to lift up another, even in the body of Christ. And when we point this specifically to the context of marriage, though, submission here means that the wife's commitment to her husband is meant to mirror her commitment to her Lord. The submission means that she speaks well of him in public, that she builds him up in private, that she gives him the benefit of the doubt, that she remains committed even when he makes a bonehead decision sometimes to figure out, man, how do I learn to have grace for this person? But let me add here before I keep moving on. Nowhere does this imply, though, that if you are being abused as a wife, to give place to it. Nowhere. It can also be a loving act your spouse to draw proper boundaries around your own life in order to make sure that you are not being harmed. And if you are in a situation of abuse in a marriage, please talk to someone about it. You're not meant to suffer in silence and alone. That is not Paul's definition or what is implied in what he is saying here. I hope that is clear. But Kirk, doesn't Paul teach that the husband is head over his wife? And doesn't that mean that he gets to make all the decisions? Right? Like, hold up right there, okay? I did that first service, I don't know. Um, 
See, while it does say, Paul does say in a few places, that the husband is head of the wife. Let's hold up before we start thinking that means that the husband gets to exert all his authority over her. If anything, though, we see that God is a God of order. And when he creates something, he creates it for a purpose and a design that it might flourish, not be broken down or abused. But when he creates something of order, he says that he created marriage between one man and one woman. I know that's hard for some of us to hear, but that he's the, he's the designer, right? I'm not. He's the designer of it. He gets to lay out what, how it needs to flourish. But Paul says, yeah, yeah, the, the husband's head of the marriage. But what does that actually mean? That as Christ sacrificed for us, the husband leads by being the first sacrifice for the church. Sometimes we think this means, ah, the husband gets to call the shots. <laughs> but if we model Christ, if we are ahead in the way that Christ is ahead over us, then we realize that as husbands, it's our job to be the first to step out and sacrificially love our wives instead of waiting for her to do it. You guys tracking with me? Okay, this is a lot. And this is exactly what Paul says. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Remember, no one spoke to, hu to husbands in his day, or at least not in this way. But Greek scholar F.F. Bruce describes what Paul's saying here by love. He says that husbands loving your wives means that they actively and unceasingly care for her well-being. It means that as husbands, we want our wives to flourish in body, mind, soul, spirit. All that they are, as they discover who they are and how God has made them, we figure out ways, man, how can I support that? How can I build that up? How can I encourage you? How can I surround you with God's word? How can I pray for you? How can I be all that Christ is for me? How can I be that for you? And he adds, do not be harsh with them. I think that's because sometimes as husbands, we can develop contempt toward our wives because we feel like they don't live up to some ideal that we have for them. We get impatient. We make fun. We say little jabby remarks to keep the stage back. The truth is I found that most of the time that husbands do that, it's because there's something in themselves that they don't like. But if we're going to be a biblical church, Christ-centered community, there is no space. That we cannot tolerate that harshness among us. For Paul said we are to be people who put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and And see, when we take this image of marriage that Paul's laying out here, we realize that the way the wife lives her life, she is modeling or teaching for her husband how he is to submit to Christ. And the way that the husband loves the wife models and teaches her how Christ loves her. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a beautiful picture that God has? Ultimately, this is how Christ in us is meant to transform the marriage. I know we got all kinds of questions.
me too. We've got to keep moving. What about kids? What about grandkids? What is the Bible, what vision does the Bible give us for the next generation? Well, Paul says family is meant to be a living picture of the love between our heavenly father and his kids. Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now today, obedience is not a popular word, right? You're not going to sell any best-selling books writing about obedience. You're not. You can sell some on happiness and self-fulfillment. Obedience? (laughs) No. For most of us, obedience gives us this picture, this image Luke does for me, of some strict disciplinarian who likes to crush kids' souls, right? That's often where our minds go this word obedience but again that's not the way the new testament shapes and forms the word obedience because scripture says that we obey god out of love for him that the reason why we do as he asks us to is because we love him and likewise learning obedience is the foundation for learning how to love god and others as kids when we learn obedience early on It teaches us, hey, the world's not ultimately about you. It's not. And it teaches us the humility, which are necessary if we're going to learn how to see and love others. That I cannot live for God one day. I cannot do amazing things for God. I cannot lead others until I first learn to follow those God has placed over me. So, this is one reason why it's important that kids learn to obey and honor their parents. So Shelby and I, when we have to discipline our kids, we try to remember to encourage them to try. To remember that whenever they've done something, that we sit them down and we say, hey, you got to obey us. But understand, mommy and daddy got to obey God. And the reason why we have to obey God and the reason why you have to obey us is because one day you got to obey God. And until you learn what it means to obey us, your earthly parents, you're not going to know how to obey God, your your father. Our kids are like, I don't know if it's getting in, right? But you say it anyway. You say it anyway. That said, as parents, it is our role to teach and raise our kids as our Heavenly Father does us. If you want to know the standard for parenting, how does our Heavenly Father love and raise us? Paul says instead of exasperating our kids with tons of rules and high expectations that they can't help but break, he says, how do you guide them and teach them to love? I've gone through seasons in my own parenting where I realized most of what's coming out of my mouth towards my kids are, don't do this, don't do that, stop that, what are you doing, right? And what that communicates over time is that as long as you're not doing something bad, it's good. But that's not how what we're called to as parents, right? We're not just called to keep them from the bad, we're called to train them in the way of Jesus and learning to love like he does. And oftentimes I've learned that that means even when I'm in task mode, it's down. Do you understand why you wait to do this now? Yes. Okay. Now, do you want to know what the better thing would have been to do? Instead of just pointing out the bad, 
me tell you how you could have been saved. Let me show you the positive, not just butcher you with the negative. And when I see my kids doing something that truly does express love, we celebrate that. But, you know, none of that really matters unless I'm also modeling the love of Christ to their mom and to them and to others. Because what they watch is more important than what I say most of the time anyway. But with this kind of family, we realize this is the kind of environment that when Christ is in us, trains or apprentices our kids in the way of Jesus. So marriage, parenting, and last, what's Paul's vision for our daily work relationships? Work relationships. See, the way we treat our co-workers gives us a living, gives a living picture to the world of our allegiance to our God. Now, before I dive into this section, let me address the elephant in the cabinet. Paul tells slaves to obey their masters in everything. So does that mean that he's okay with slavery? Well, U.S. slaveholders long ago would have said yes, absolutely. And they would have quoted this verse to their slaves, which would have proven to me that they didn't really want to understand Paul as much as they wanted Paul to justify their sins. Because if you look at Paul honestly, he says just a few verses before, there's neither slave nor free. But hit me with you. I mean, it's possible in an early church community for a slave to have a position of leadership in a local church. And if the master comes to Christ, to actually have to submit to his own slave in the context of church community. Isn't that revolutionary? Isn't that crazy? In another letter to a Christian brother named Philemon, Philemon was a slave owner himself. And Paul writes him a letter. Because he met a runaway slave of Philemon's named Onesimus. And after Onesimus comes to Christ, Paul writes this letter to Philemon. He says, Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus back. But this time not as a slave, but as a brother. As a matter of fact, Paul says, I want you to receive Onesimus back as you would receive me. That's a high charge. That's a high charge. Paul even told slaves, 1 Corinthians 7, that every chance they had to gain their freedom, do it. You see, the very opposite of condoning slavery, I see Paul sowing the seeds for abolition in the midst of this world. I don't think there's any way that we can justify that Paul endorses what was okay with slavery. No way. Not if you actually take him seriously. But for us today, man, how are we meant to take a passage like this and apply it in the midst of our own lives? Well, I think it gives us sound wisdom for how we are to operate in our work relationships, employee-employer relationships. And see, as employees, we work for our bosses knowing that the Lord is our ultimate boss. And Paul says, if you've got that, then you're not just going to work hard when the boss is looking. And you're not just going to work hard in order to get the boss's attention in order to get the promotion. He says, you're going to maintain integrity across it all because ultimately you know that you are working in order to please the Lord, not a human being. He said, you're going to work heartily, which can also be translated work mindfully because you know that ultimately the Lord's the one who provides for you. And it's in the end of all times, he's the one you're ultimately going to answer to when all is said and done. says, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Employer, treat your employees as you want the master to treat you. Again, the fact that Paul calls out masters in this time and tells them to treat his slaves justly and fairly, <laughs> revolutionary, completely unheard of, because slaves are property. But what he says to them is basically a rephrasing, I fear, of the golden rule. Treat your slaves or treat those who work under you as you would wish your own heavenly master to treat you. If you have people under you, are you trying to get the most out of them while giving them the least you possibly can? Or are you setting up a kind of work environment that is fair and just and that helps them do their best work? As an employer, are you seeking to build up? Or by your actions, are you consistently tearing those who work for you down? To sum it all up, when we work for our Lord first, we mindfully seek the best for others, not just ourselves. And realize our job exists not just to gain an income for ourselves, but it's to make a difference in the midst of this world. That we are serving our clients, we are serving our customer base, we are serving our co-workers, we are serving even our bosses. And to all, we are emulating and asking, okay, what would it look like if Jesus lived my life? What would it look like for him to work where I work? That changes the game. And so when we put all these relationships together, marriage, family, work, or whatever type of relationship that we're closest to, when our closest relationships are experiencing the love of Jesus through us, it's clear God's doing a revolutionary work in us. Now, I would have loved, after this letter, to have had a Q&A with Paul. I got a lot of questions. Paul, what do you do when the, the boss is like telling you what he should be telling you? How do you respond to that? Paul, what do you do with with parents that are asking their kids to do things that are actually disobedient to the Lord. Well, I, I can't answer that. The kids are not supposed to do that, right? Like, we obey the Lord first. Well, Paul, what do you do in case of abusive relationships or someone's abusing the power over somebody else, right? We got all of these types of questions. If you have them, I have them too. And again, let me emphasize before we close up today that if you are in a relationship that is abusive, that is taking advantage of you, that is consistently harming or wounding or creating trauma in your life, talk to someone about it. Please. Again, the goal is that we would flourish in these relationships. But when we come back to the core of all this, with whatever questions we do have, we go back to the same core that Paul had, which was, in light of my allegiance to Jesus and the way that he has loved me, and the way that he calls me to love others, how might I navigate this in the way that it is best for me? If you're looking for what is fitting in the midst of our own relationships, how is it that the Lord has loved us? And how is it that he calls us to love others? And the truth is, this means that each of, this is why it's so crucial that each of us cultivate 
and spend time getting to know Jesus for ourselves. Because if you're like me, I would have loved it if Paul would have just issued, I don't know, another hundred pages of rules for every sort of situation I could possibly face. But if I had just memorized a rule book, my heart doesn't have to be changed. I don't have to go and say, Lord, show me what your love is like again. I don't have to go and say, hey, I need, like, this is hard. Show me how to forgive right now. But because the, the standard is knowing Jesus and his love, we keep going back to him. We bring our prayer before him. We thank him for what he has done. And we continue to place these people right before him. And what I want to do right now is to place these relationships right before him. I'm going to give us a moment of silence again. Because I find no better way to respond to this message than to just take a moment. And those closest to you, you could thank God for them. You could pray for them. But get their names and their faces in their minds and just simply place them before God. You may not know what to say. Just get their face in your mind and pretend as if you're just holding it up before God. But I want us just to place, it doesn't have to be your marriage, or your family, or coworkers. It could be anybody close to you. Just lay them right before the Lord right now, just in a moment of silence. Heavenly Father, my gracious Savior, my Master, it is sometimes the hardest people to love are those closest to us. The hardest ones to forgive are those near and dear to us. But yet, we know that the transforming work you want to do in us isn't just to give us a better attitude and to make us happy and make us peaceful. While that is part of it, you're also wanting to transform our relationships and how we treat one another. Because you, Jesus, want to be Lord over all of our lives. So Lord, show us how to bring even our closest relationships into line with you and your love, and your lordship, that you show us how to submit to you first as king over us, and then to bring these relationships to you. I know here, some of these close relationships, there's division and hurt and anger in the midst of them. Lord, I pray for healing, for reconciliation, for forgiveness. Lord, for some, we are deeply worried about our family or our, our somebody else. We're not sure if they know Jesus. Jesus, will you pursue their hearts? Will you pursue their hearts? We cannot control that, but we place that in your hands and show us how can we model you. For others, Lord, we're just so deeply grateful for the close relationships we have, and we thank you and praise you that you place them in our lives. But in all these things, may you be Lord over all. Jesus mighty name and everybody said amen let's stand up let's sing the final song together we are built on the foundation of his love